So Romans chapter 9, we're going to go fast so we can get his point. Get the basic point um, so that if you do go back and ask yourself questions or want to talk about it, you'll, you'll have something, the basic point to, to grab onto. So the, the, the problem that the passage brings us is, is this. God promised to rescue Israel through a Messiah. Tons of promises all over the place. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. But that hasn't yet happened. Hasn't happened in our day. It hasn't happened in Paul's day. You know, millions of Jewish people are not saying, wow, he's the Messiah we've been waiting for. Let's believe in him. That hasn't happened. Some have, but the majority know. And the question is, well, why? So Paul is going to address why. Why is that? And he does this by he's going to defend three things about God that are not true that people are saying. And then he's going to tell us why Israel doesn't want Jesus. Why are so many uh, people descended from Abraham? Why, have they, why haven't they accepted Jesus as a Messiah? And by doing that, he lets us, he, he lets us think about uh, what, on earth, um, what on earth is that noise? Yeah. Anyway, uh, it, he's asking us to think about the interplay between we do what we want, we make our own decisions, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not, like rejecting Jesus is a bad decision. We, we do what we want, and yet God decides, um, God decides what happens. And, but yet both are completely true, so how does that work together? So it, it asks us to think about that question, so it's extremely uh, important chapter. It talks about a lot of stuff. Why do some people accept divine rescue through Jesus and other people don't? I don't know if there's a, uh, I don't know if there's a, it's one of the tougher questions you can ask. Um, some Christians will just say, well, they chose not to, so it's free will. Just, they chose not to. Other Christians will go the other way and they'll say, in the end, they didn't, they don't believe in Jesus because God chose not to save them. And so you have two you have two answers that are that are going on that are common depending on what kind of church you go to. You used to be able to tell what church would have what position by the name on the sign. That's not really true so much anymore. But those are the two big options that people answer about why doesn't Fred believe in Jesus? Why don't lots of Jewish people believe in Jesus? Why don't why doesn't my mom believe in Jesus? Um, those are the two answers that you're often going to get. What does the Bible say? What does Paul say here in this passage? So we're going to go through the passage by most of the passage is Paul defending God, saying God's not, God's not weak, God's not unjust, God's not unfair. And then he's going to give his answer at the end. And chapter 10 is a ex longer explanation of that answer. And chapter 11 is, is also. So a lot of stuff. So let's pray and we'll... See what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 9. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to, help us to have uh, open eyes, open hearts, open ears, to see what you're saying here in your word, and to get out of it not philosophical questions that just float around in the sky and have no bearing on real life, but help us to be encouraged and to be, um, help us to be encouraged by what we read here about who you are, and your goodness, your mercy, your kindness, and uh, help us to view this passage the right way and encourage us with it through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he starts off in verses 1 through 5 uh, saying something really simple. Paul says, after all this theological stuff he's talked about in Romans chapters 1 through 8, he basically just says, I just wish that 
Jewish people would accept Jesus. That's what he wants. He always goes to the synagogues first and they always run him out. Uh, so he ends up being, you know, going to the Gentiles instead. And a lot of them love what he has to say. He's pursued all over the place by Jewish people who stone him and hound him because um, they think he's a heretic. They don't like the guy. And, and so Paul, um, Paul opens this, this part and he's just, I just wish Jewish people would realize Jesus is the Messiah. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why is he upset? I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Who are his people? The people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He just wishes people could see like him that Jesus is everything they've been waiting for from the, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. He just, why can't they see it? And so he, that's what he says in the next uh, verse. All these advantages, all of this light. You know, some people have different amounts of, are allowed to see different um, gradations of truth. Some people have a little bit of gospel light that shines into their life. A person who told them about Jesus when they were a kid. And the next time they really have any encounter with Christianity might be when they're 30. You know, little, little bits of light here and there. And then there's other people who are raised with so much light. It's like blasting them with like those, those stadium lights, like burning their corneas. So much light. And Paul says that's, that's what the Jewish people are like. He says theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, all of this stuff they had. They, all these promises, all of this truth, all of this scripture, right? Even Leviticus that you're, gonna, you're probably going to skip with your Bible reading plan. Like all of it, all this stuff, so much truth, so much light, so much everything. The, verse 5, theirs are the patriarchs. Like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, all of the promises were made to them. You're physically descended from them. What's the problem? From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Jesus is a Jew. I mean, Paul's thinking, what? I just wish they could get it. And so now he's going to defend God by, uh, there are three, three common um, things that are floating around out there in the, the, the gossip and the rumor mills, so to speak, about God. And Paul wants, Paul wants to talk about it. Because God has made lots of promises to the Jewish people, but most Jewish people don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, what does that say about God? The first thing he wants us to know is that it doesn't mean that God failed. It doesn't mean that God failed. That's the first thing he says in verse 6. It's not as though God's word had failed. That's the first thing he wants to make sure we get. Why, why is God's word not failed? Failed means it's become weak or God wasn't able to get it done. God wasn't strong enough to get it done. Like the Seahawks fired their coach, uh, Pete Carroll. You know, great coach, done so many things, but... Yeah, for some people, it just come, the time had come where they felt like, we just need new blood. We need a new guy. It's not happening in the last few years. We just need, we need someone hungry or someone younger. And, you know, he's 72 years old. It's time to, you know, a great guy, but, you know, time to, time to move on. Like, he, he failed. Pete Carroll failed in that respect. He just, you know, just 
couldn't couldn't get it done anymore. So you know, great guy. Time to move on. You know, we'll put a picture of him somewhere. But time to move on. Uh, God's word didn't fail. Like God, it's not like God couldn't get it done. You know, great God, he tried. Eh. You know, we all make mistakes. It's Paul says that's not the case with God. That that's not why Israel hasn't accepted their Messiah. And he gives a bunch of reasons, which is why this is would be really good for a discussion. But he says, uh, first of all, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What's that mean? What's that mean? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. It means just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you actually love God. That's a newsflash. Um, there's plenty of people who are Jewish who don't love you in the Old Testament who don't love God. Um, um, there's you're Jewish and then you're an Israelite who actually loves God. That's a real Israelite. So first of all, there's a whole bunch of Israelites who hate God, Paul says. So let's just get that straight right away. Uh, second, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Um, God didn't make promises to everyone descended from, uh, from Abraham. Ishmael's family has no promises. Ishmael's family has no promises. Only, only, um, only Isaac. The, the promise goes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ishmael's set to the side, and Esau is, uh, is, uh, uh, Esau is set to the side as well. Uh, there, there's, no, um, there's no promise that everyone who's physically descended from Abraham receives the promise, because Isaac's the only one the lineage went through. Nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be reckoned, quoting from Genesis. In other words, he says, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And even when Isaac had kids, the promise didn't go through Esau, it went through Jacob. So Paul, the first thing Paul says is, you know, it's not as though God couldn't, couldn't get it done. There's a whole bunch of people descended from Abraham who don't love God and weren't part of the promise to begin with. So let's get that straight right off the bat, Paul says. So in verse 14, he answers a different question. Does that mean that God is cruel, unjust? Um, is that what it means? If God made lots of promises to the Jewish people, but most Jewish people don't believe Jesus is their Messiah, and if it's not because God just couldn't get it done, then is he just cruel? Is he unjust? Is that, is, that why, is that why Jewish people don't believe in the Messiah? Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. And this is why Romans chapter 9 is very difficult. Is God unjust? No, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have mercy compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Talking about the heart. So is God unjust? Paul says no, and then he has this right here. What's he saying? If you had to sum up what Paul's saying in verses 14 to 18, what is Paul saying? You know what Paul's saying, but you immediately want to find a way to make him say what he's not saying. 
right? You, you know what he's saying. Um, what Paul says is God can do what he wants. God can show mercy to people or he cannot show mercy. He doesn't have to show mercy. He decides to show mercy. He's not obligated to rescue every single person who's ever been born. None of us deserve to be rescued anyway. We should be grateful he decides to rescue anybody. So when you ask the question, God must be unfair and unjust, Paul's coming at this from, you don't deserve it. We don't deserve anything. So the fact that anyone, anyone is saved, that God has mercy on anyone he wants, we should be grateful that he's chosen to save anybody. Because he can do what he wants. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he gives the example of Pharaoh. The only reason Pharaoh existed is so God could use him to get his people out of Egypt and to show what happens when people who hate God try and fight against him. They lose. That's his whole purpose for existence. That's the only reason he was alive. That's what verse 17 says. That's his only purpose in life, is so that we could talk about him today as an example of this is someone, this is what happens when you hate God and fight against him. You're not going to win. That's why Romans 9 through 11 is one argument. He doesn't just leave it here saying God can do what he wants. Um, he then spends a whole chapter talking about how Israel made such a mistake by not believing in Jesus. How the message is there, they just don't believe it. So Paul talks about God can do what he wants, and he talks about human responsibility all the time. He talks about them both sort of one after another. They don't, they're not in, in competition with, with each other, but in some mysterious way, they're both true. So the, first, the second thing is, is God unjust? Is he, is he cruel? Is he, is, he, is he unfair? And Paul says, no, God can do what he wishes. Therefore, God is mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And I think this is the point that we need to realize. God isn't obligated to give mercy to anybody, but he chooses to make mercy available, even now, to make mercy available. We sometimes like to think of, hum of the world as people struggling in an ocean after a ship has gone down, and they're struggling and they just need a life preserver thrown to them so they can be saved. And if God has a life preserver, and he decides not to throw it out to you, God must not be very nice, because who wouldn't want people to get in the lifeboat? That's an analogy that's been, I heard it often when I was younger. It's, it's an analogy that floats around everywhere, but that's not the right analogy. The analogy of us, you know, we're struggling in the water, we're innocent people who are about to die. But the Bible talks about how we're, we're terrorists who don't love God, but he chooses to go out there and save us anyway. That, that's the analogy where I gave the example a few times before in different sermons. We're like those, those insane Antifa terrorists who are attacking the federal building in downtown Portland with laser lights and, and homemade Molotov cocktails and everything back when, uh, back when uh, during COVID in 2020 and all the huge crisis in Portland. We were, we're them and God shows mercy by walking out of the court of this building that's being besieged, so to speak, and deciding to rescue a bunch of people from the crowd anyway, even as they're shining industrial laser lights in his eyes and trying to blind him and you know, throwing rocks at him and everything. Jesus comes out and rescues a whole bunch of people who are doing that anyway. That's the right analogy. So the fact that God even wanted to come out and, and rescue a whole bunch of the people who hate him so much, that is what we should focus on. 
If we say, well, you're not fair, that's, you're coming at this from the wrong way. We don't deserve fair. That, that, that's what's behind what, what Paul is, is saying here. And he can do what he wants. God has mercy in whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. The next one carries on from that. Um, one of you, verse 19, one of you will say to me, this is the third way he's defending God. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Who's able to resist his will? So if you were sitting here and thinking, makes it sound like we just have no choice, right? If God can do what he wants, then what responsibility do I have? God decides what's going to happen. It happens. It's not my fault. I can only follow along in whatever, you know, whatever, whatever direction God's steering this train. And Paul says that. That's what he's heard. He's heard this argument before. Now, why does God blame us? Who can resist his will? And his answer is basically, for someone who asks with that attitude, his answer is essentially, who do you think you are? That's his answer. Who do you think you are? Um, verse 20, but who are you? a human being or just, just, a, just a mere person, who are you to talk back to God? And Paul doesn't, pastors like to you know, give all these caveats for things. Like it says this, but this is also what it means. Paul doesn't do that. He says, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Can that happen? Uh, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? There's this account in Jeremiah 18 in the midst of all this talk in Jeremiah about how Israel needs to repent or else bad things will happen. And in Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's house um, and he's there. He goes there and he sees the guy with this lump of clay and he has this spinning thing. I actually don't know if, they, I'm sure they had the spinning thing then. Whatever, just get the image in your head of the spinning thing and you can take the, take the clay and you can mold it to whatever shape you. The guy molds into whatever shape he wants for this or for that or for this, that, a vase, a cup, a bowl, whatever. He can do whatever he wants with it. And God tells Jeremiah, you guys are the clay and I'm the potter. And I can, if you, if you guys want to keep going this way, we can do that, and I'll, uh, I'll just make something new. I can, make, I can do whatever I want, because you're clay, and I'm the, I can shape, I can move, I, I'm in charge. I can, I can do what I need to. I can redirect, I can shape it this way, I can set it aside and get a new lump of clay. I can do all sorts of stuff, because I'm the potter. I can shape things the way I want them to be. So Paul takes this analogy, and Jeremiah, he ended with, so you, you all better please repent and fix yourselves. But Paul takes that and says, hey, the potter can do what he wants. The potter can make some vessels, you know, ceremonial with nice stuff and all these paintings and all these. Um, he can make these really beautiful little pots and he can make others that you use for who knows what. You know, some, some can be special, some cannot be. God can do what he wants. Who, who do you think you are? That's his answer. He doesn't give a lot of caveats. Who do you think you are? If God made lots of promises to the Jewish people, but the Jewish people don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, and if God hasn't failed because he couldn't get it done, that's not true. And if God isn't unjust and cruel, that's not true either. Then why does he blame us if we don't choose Jesus? We must be, we're innocent then, we have no choice. And Paul basically says, 
Who on earth do you think you are to think like that? Who do you think you are if you think like that and you honestly believe that you've done nothing wrong and that it's God's fault that you don't love him, that you reject him, that you don't love Jesus. If it's God's fault and you bear no responsibility, Paul doesn't even want to, Paul doesn't even, says he doesn't even want to talk to you. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? So because ending on that note brings all sorts of, well, wait a minute, questions, you know, floating around in your mind about the thing that makes this passage so hard. Are we, pers- are we not personally responsible then? Paul says, that's not true. Well, if, does God decide what happens? Yes, he does. So how do those things supposed to work together? Paul offers these two what-if statements. And he doesn't offer them as fact. He just asks like a question. What if this is why? What if that is why? And he doesn't answer the question. But he's just trying to get us to think. I don't know if Paul knows the answer. Paul's like us. He knows that both of them are true. We have to choose to repent and believe the gospel. You have to choose to believe in Jesus. You have to do that. You must do that. But God's the one who's in charge. Paul believes in both of them just like us. But the Holy Spirit leads him to ask these two what-if questions as a as a suggestion to help us understand why, to help us understand what we're supposed to do with this information. Because if we just left it at the end of verse 21, it sounds really harsh. Really harsh, which is why it isn't the most fun thing to, to preach about. But he didn't leave it there. He asks two what-if questions, which go from 20, verses 22 to 29. So Paul isn't trying to explain how can those two things work together. He's trying to get us to say, what should we think about the fact that this is reality. You have to make a decision for Jesus. You have to, it has to be your decision. You have to make it. And you can choose not to make it. So yet there's that. And God is the God can do what he wants. He'll have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he'll harden the hearts of people whose hearts he wants to harden, just like he did with Pharaoh. That's what he did with Pharaoh. So how do you put those things that Paul is trying to um, get us to think about what should we learn from this not how does this work and if x plus five equals y and all these philosophical things he doesn't care about that he's just saying what should you think about the fact that it is the way it is that that is the way it is and he's again give an example of two different groups of people vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy or objects of wrath or objects of mercy to make his point and he just asks a question he wants you to think The first question is about the people who don't believe in Jesus. What if God, verse 22, what if, number one, God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? That's the first question. You have people who are not going to choose Jesus. You have a bunch of Jewish people who are not going to choose Jesus. You have a whole bunch of people just like you and me who, who I'm assuming most people here are not Jewish, who are not going to choose Jesus. Why? What should you think about that? Paul says, what if to show his wrath and to make his power known, he bore with great, he put up with so much from people who, don't, who are never going to believe in Jesus? What, what if that's what God wants us to learn? As we think, well, what are we supposed to do about this? He has so much patience. Patience. If God is patient, 
That means he's waiting. What is he waiting for? What's God waiting for? Why isn't Jesus come back now? What is God waiting for? What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the full number of people who are going to accept Jesus to do it. He's waiting for us to either continue to dig our own graves and go our own way or to turn and accept Jesus. If God is the potter and we're the clay, he doesn't have to be patient with us. He could toss us away and make something new immediately, but he's waiting. What if God wants us to see how patient he is by waiting so long and letting so many people who aren't going to accept Jesus because he knows they're not going to accept Jesus, letting them just go their own way and hate God their whole lives. What if God is, wants to show us how patient he is? So then, when it does come time for judgment, any fair-minded person can say, what, el what else could God have done? Their whole life, he gave them everything. He gave them everything their whole life, all the blessings they have, their family, their friends, their intelligence, their health, um, their job, gave them everything they have, and they never gave anything, to, they, they, they never chose to believe in God, they never chose to believe in Jesus, they never chose any of that at the end of their whole life after receiving so much, God was so patient. So the idea seems to be that in the end, a fair person would say, you know, what else, could, what else is God supposed to have done? He was so patient with them for so long. In Acts chapter 14, the apostle Paul says, talking to a group of, of pagans, he says, in the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. He's given, he's given you so much. And that just shows how patient he's been. The second what-if question is in verse 23. And depending on, depending on how your translation is, it might not say what if in verse 23, but I think it should say what if in verse 23. The second what if question is, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That's a long sentence. What's he say, what he's saying is the what if number two that he wants us just to think about. He's just asking the question so you can ponder it. What if God is doing something bigger than just Israel? That's what he's asking. What if, the, what if God's plan, instead of worrying about whether God has made good on his promises to Israel, he will, that's what the next two chapters are about. Um, but what, what if there's something bigger that God has planned that you don't realize? What if, what if that's what he's doing? Maybe that's why God isn't focusing on Israel right now. Romans 11 says he will one day, so we'll get there in, in, you know, in two weeks. But maybe there's something bigger going on here. Maybe that's why Israel doesn't yet accept its Messiah. It doesn't mean they shouldn't have accepted him, but they haven't. What's the reason? Maybe there's something bigger going on here. Maybe, and this is a crazy thought, maybe we don't see the whole picture. Maybe we're like little babies who don't want to take a nap, but the baby can't see that it needs to take a nap. She doesn't know. She's just angry. She doesn't understand because her perspective is so limited. Maybe that's us. And there's something bigger going on here that we don't understand. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? 
whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Maybe God's doing something so much bigger than Israel. And that's what's going on right now. And then he gives three quotations which prove the point. The first quote, as he says in Hosea, quote, I'll call them my people who are not my people, and I'll call her my loved one who's not my loved one. In Hosea, that's about Jewish people who he's forsaken, who he's going to bring back. Here, Paul says it's also about people who aren't Jewish who he's going to bring into the family. I will call them my people who are not my people. Maybe he's bringing in people from all over the place to be part of his family, and he's doing something bigger than just worrying about Israel. He'll worry about them one day, but now he's doing something else. And another quote from Hosea 1 verse 10 Quote, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they'll be called children of the living God. In Hosea, that was God saying to the Israelites, I'm done with you, it's over. But then, you know, accepting them back when they came back to him. Here, Paul says, um, there's a whole bunch of people who aren't his people who are going to be called children. Gentiles, people like you and me who are going to be able to join God's family. And then he gives a quote from Isaiah in verse 27, where Isaiah says, I never promised I'd save every Israelite. I said I'd save a remnant. So you want to know why millions upon millions of Israelites haven't believed in Jesus? Because I never said that every Israelite would believe in Jesus. I said a remnant would be saved. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed in finality. Didn't God say most Israelites wouldn't believe? Isn't that what he said? So, Paul has defended God against three accusations. Now he's going to give his answer. Why did the Israelites not believe in Jesus? Here's where he gives his, his answer. And here is where you see this conundrum of we do what we want, yet God's in charge. Because he spent so much time talking about God will have mercy on whoever he wants. But doesn't that make God, uh, that means we're innocent. Who do you think you are? So all of this, Paul's given all this behind the scenes that are sort of peeking behind the divine curtain to have a glimpse of the stuff that goes on that we can't see that result in what happens in this world. But at the end, in verses 30 to 33, what does Paul say? He's told us God hasn't failed. He's told us God isn't cruel and unjust. And he's told us God... Uh, that, that God is not wrong to blame us. We are blameworthy. Who do we think we are to say we're not? So what then shall we say in verse 30? So what's his answer? Verses 1 through 5, he said, I just wish the Israelites would believe in Jesus. Well, what's the answer? Why don't they? Now, he's given all this deep behind-the-scenes stuff, but lay it out on the table. What is the reason why? They haven't believed in Jesus as their Messiah. What then shall we say, verse 30, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. He hasn't answered the question yet. He's just stating the obvious. A bunch of Gentiles believe in Jesus, not trying to earn their salvation, but a bunch of Jewish people haven't. Why? Verse 32, because they pursued it not by faith, but as, that, but as it if were by works. Why don't Jewish people believe in the Messiah? Because they're trying to earn their salvation. That's why. That's his answer. That's his answer. 
After all the talk of the things that goes on behind the curtain of God choosing, God deciding to have mercy on whoever he wants, um, God being free to do that if he wants, who do you think you are to question God? All of that important stuff to make sure that we're, we realize who we are and who he is. His answer is, you want to know why a bunch of Jewish people haven't believed Jesus is their Messiah? You want to know why your people you know and care about, your friends, your family members, your co do you want to know why they haven't believed in Jesus? It's because they haven't believed in him by faith. That's why. They're trying to earn peace by some form of resumeism. No matter who you are, whether you're trying to earn earn salvation from God or you're just trying to find something that gives you peace and security in life. If you're not pursuing it by faith, then you're pursuing it by works. And by works means that, as I said before, it's like you have something that you're holding on to as the justification for why you're a good person. If, you're, if you want to be a religious person, you're holding on to all the good things that you do that show that you're religious. I do this, I do that, I help at the food bank, I do this, I donate this money, I do all these things that make you a good person. That's your credential. So if someone says, Why, how do you know that you have you know, life, eternal life with God? They'll be like, because of this stuff, all this stuff that I do. If you're not a religious person and you don't really care about God at all, um, you're still have something that gives you peace and security, something that says that you can point to that says you're good, something that says you're, you're worth something. Um, in, out in the world, some people look at um, diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, and stuff like that as the thing that gives value in their life. This is the work we need to do. And it, for some people, it can become some sort of religious thing, like this is what this is what we need this is will make the world a better place this shows i'm a good person because this is the stuff that i fight for it doesn't matter what it is if you're relying on something to just to give you peace or to justify why you're a great person that's resumeism. that's works that's earning trying to get peace by doing things whether it's with god or just peace in your own heart by doing things instead paul spent eight chapters talking about how peace with god only comes by trusting in Jesus. That's all that, that's the only way you're going to have peace with God. That's the only way you're going to have peace in your heart and soul is if you trust in Jesus as the one who's been perfect for you and reconciles you to God and gives you the peace that you're looking for, whether you're looking for it from God or looking for it from some other vehicle that you can point to and say, this is why I'm happy. This is why I have peace. It's either Jesus or it's nothing. That's what Paul says. That's why Israel hasn't believed in God. That's it. So the problem that, and what makes this interesting is that Paul goes on for two more chapters. So this isn't the end of the matter. But for today, it's the end of our matter. God promised to rescue Israel through a Messiah, Jesus. But it hasn't happened yet. So that must mean God is he's weak, he couldn't get it done, or he's unjust, he's not fair, or um, he's just, um, he's wrong to blame us. It's not our fault then. If he's in charge, then who are we to argue against him? That must be why Israel hasn't believed in the Messiah. Paul, if I can sum up what Paul says here, what Paul wants you to think is you think about loved ones who don't believe in Jesus. What should you think about this? 
Because some of you, maybe you don't sit around like Paul does and say, I just wish that Israel would be saved. Maybe you sit around saying, I wish that Jane would be saved. I wish that my mom would be saved. I wish my son would be saved. So this, is a real, this isn't a theological thing in a book. This is a, it isn't a book, but it's a real question. That's why it's in this book. It's a real question. What should you think? What's the answer? Is it God's fault? Is it our fault? What's the answer? His answer seems to be, it is not God's fault. If you choose to reject Jesus, then it's your fault. If you want to pursue resumeism, peace by some sort of list of awesome things you do to prove that you're amazing or to, to, to feel good about yourself, then that's your decision. You can do that if you want. It's just not going to go anywhere. Yes, God is in charge and his will will be done. And when you peel the layers of the onion away, yes, God will have mercy on whom he wants and he'll pardon whom he pardons. We don't know who that is. We don't know why he does it. That's why Paul asked the what-if questions. Maybe he's trying to show how much patience he has because they had so much light and so much chance to repent and they didn't. What if God's doing something bigger and wants to reach more and more people, which is why he's waiting so long? But in the end, Paul says, what shall we say? Why, don't, why do so many Israelites not believe Jesus is the Messiah? Because they don't want to. That's why. They don't want to. That's why... God sends Christians throughout the entire earth to try and persuade people to believe in Jesus. Missions, which Paul, which Jesus told us to go do, it's on the wooden big plaque thing on the wall back there. Uh, missions is what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to tell people the story, tell people the good news, so they can choose to believe in Jesus. Or choose not to believe in Jesus. He wants us to tell people to repent and believe the gospel. He wants us to tell people the good news. He wants us to do a Christmas festival so we can get just a few kids and their parents here so we can tell them about the good news. He wants us to, to, to show Christ's light in the world by doing things, by showing Christ's love to the community. He wants us to, to live Christian lives, to tell, show and tell people this message so they can choose. So they can choose. You can either choose to pursue pursue righteousness by works, by all the things you do or all the things that you, that you think are your credential, your ticket to being happy and good, better than the other person, or you can pursue righteousness by faith. It's a gift that God offers you. You can pursue your own, or you can accept the righteousness from God that he offers. We're genuinely responsible for accepting and rejecting Christ. That's how Paul ended. That's what he'll spend all of chapter 10 talking about. And Jesus makes a genuine offer to the world. Repent and believe the good news. There's a lot more we could talk about. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2 talks about this problem. Uh, John chapter 6 talks about this problem. There's, but this problem always exists on two levels. There is God's perspective as the parent running the household, knowing what's going to happen, orchestrating the little baby's routine. And then there's the baby's perspective, who doesn't see all that much. Sees some, knows wants to stay up, knows she wants food, but doesn't know that she has to wait a little bit for food. Doesn't know that she has to take a nap. She doesn't want to take a nap. Doesn't know why she can't do this when there's a reason why she can't do that. Um, this question is always addressed from two perspectives. God's perspective, which Paul has given us a little glimpse behind the curtain into, but then there's our perspective. 
And our job, our end is to repent and believe. That's what our job is. So every question about why, 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 you can talk about God's plan from up there, or you can just talk about why doesn't Fred believe in the gospel? Because Fred didn't want to believe in the gospel. That's why Fred didn't believe in the gospel. Maybe Fred will believe in the gospel if you keep talking to him about it and living a Christian life and, and showing and telling the good news to him. Maybe he will. God has great patience. Maybe that's why he's waiting so long. Paul said that in verse 22. But never, never ask that question about someone in your life and leave it with, God must not have wanted to save the person. I don't think that's not where Paul left it. That's not where he leaves it in verse 30 to 33. We have to decide to accept or reject Jesus. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff behind the curtain, so to speak. We have to decide. Our end is to decide and choose Jesus. Have we chosen him or not? That's, that's what Paul focuses on. And that's what he'll spend all of chapter 10 talking about before he comes back to more behind-the-scenes stuff in chapter 11. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to love you. Help us to have the right view of this passage. Help us to never get, never give people or feel like we're robots caught in a, caught in a game that's bigger than us that we don't understand. But help us to know that we have a God who, is, who, who isn't weak, who doesn't fail, who isn't, um, who isn't unjust, and who isn't unfair. Help us to know that. Help us to know that because you're driving the train that is this world, we know it's on a good path, we know it's on the right path, and we know it's going to get to where it's going without derailing. Help us to know that our responsibility, uh, from our perspective here, what we're supposed to do is repent and believe the gospel, to believe in the, the righteousness that we can have through you as a gift by faith, and then to, to live the Christian life and show and tell people about this good news. Help us to worry about that and help that to be our focus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.